Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's program. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. After nearly 18 months of being an all-digital organization, the Commonwealth Club is welcoming our members and the public back to our building for live programs. But we continue to host many virtual programs, like today's important session. You can see all of our upcoming in-person and digital offerings on our website at www.commonwealthclub.org. With so much going on at the club right now, it's a great time to become a member of the club or to renew your membership, which you can also learn about on our website. Today's program, The Private Sector's Role in Ending the COVID-19 Pandemic, is underwritten by Kaiser Permanente. It's the latest program in our joint thought leadership series, Destination Health, which explores important issues in healthcare and society. We are thankful for Kaiser's long-term support of this series. Previous programs in the series can be found on the club's website or on our YouTube page. Today's program focuses on the important role of the private sector in ending the COVID-19 pandemic, including with the implementation of vaccine mandates for employees. This is a critical issue for the country, as all of us wish for the end of the pandemic. We are very pleased to have representatives from both major corporations and small businesses here today to hear how they are addressing these critical issues. I'm pleased now to turn the program over to Gregory Adams, the chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente, for his remarks. Over to you, Greg. Good afternoon and good evening to those of you beyond the West Coast. Thank you for joining us for this virtual panel conversation on the role of the private sector in ending this pandemic. The past 18 months have challenged and tested all of us in ways we could have never imagined. The devastating effects and the tragic loss of life continue as we fight the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID-19. Our intensive care units are no longer filled with only the most vulnerable. We're now seeing the young, the previously healthy, and most concerning, our children. This additional surge of COVID-19 patients comes as hospitals and healthcare organizations across the country are addressing the implications of care that was delayed or avoided in 2020. It means again being forced to cancel elective surgeries and limit care for other diseases and emergencies such as cancer, strokes, and heart attacks. It also puts an incredible strain on our already wearied doctors, nurses, and frontline employees who are putting their lives and well-being at risk every day. Kaiser Permanente's mission calls us to protect the health and safety of our patients, employees, and communities. On August 2nd, we announced that we would mandate vaccinations for our more than 216,000 employees and 23,000 physicians by September 30th of this year. Since that time, we have increased employee vaccination rates from 78% to nearly 92%, and our physicians' vaccination rates are now at 97%. No matter what lies ahead with COVID-19, the more vaccinated we are as a community, a nation, and a globe, the safer we will be from this dangerous virus. President Biden's decision to require federal workers, medium and large employers, and the healthcare staff to get vaccinated is an important and needed step 
in the fight against the pandemic. Our business community must work together and find a way to close the vaccination gap in our organization and our communities. It is our moral obligation to do so. More than 700,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. That's one in every 500 people. History has shown us what we can accomplish when our nation comes together. This needs to be one of those times. Through vaccination, we can stop this pandemic for our families, for our friends, and for each other. Thank you for being with us today. I will now turn the program over to our moderator for today's discussion, Raj Mathai. Greg, thank you for that nice introduction and thank you for your comments. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think everyone on this panel couldn't agree more that we really need the public to come together with the private sector, the business community uh, to get past this. Uh, we want to thank Kaiser Permanente for its support for really uh, bringing this important program to light uh, in combining and combating to end uh, this pandemic, COVID-19. Before we get started, uh, another quick introduction of today's panelists. And we have really have a really good cross-section of corporate leaders to discuss today's important subject. Brett Hart, the president of United Airlines. Brett, nice to see you. Pleasure, Raj. Thank you for having uh, me. Molly Moon Neitzel, the CEO of Molly Moon's Ice Cream in Seattle. Molly, you're our sweetest panelist uh, of the program. Good to see you. Thank you. <laughs> Jim Wonderman, CEO and president of the Bay Area Council. Hello, Jim. Yeah, hi, Raj. And the underwriter for today's program, we're pleased to have uh, Dr. Stephen Perotti, the Vice President of External Communications for the Permanente Group and a specialist in internal medicine and infectious disease. Nice to have all of you on the program. And, you know, I think we all are in our communities, in our places of work, in our families wondering, you know, is it going to be just the public? Is it going to be the business sector that saves us? We're not quite sure. And this is great to, to get all of your input um, in, these next, uh, in this next hour. Um, Dr. Prodi, let's start with you. Let's just get a report card. Uh, you're, you're the specialist here. You're the expert. Um, where are we? Is there a progress report? I would love to say you're going to tell us this pandemic ends in 90 days, but I don't think that's the case. What, what's the progress report? Well, let me let me just speak to, and it's really, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today to be speaking on this really important topic. And let me just put it this way. This last surge, I think, taught us a lot. And it's really a tale of two surges when I think about it. So first of all, there were communities now that are actually at vaccination rates of 85 to 90% of the eligible population. And in, in addition to that, those communities tended to double down on some of the basic sensible practices not locking down the community, but actually wearing masks where appropriate indoors or in schools. And guess what? We did not see significant surges in the hospitals. We didn't see excess deaths. In fact, you know, we kind of weathered that last surge without a whole lot of impact. Then you have communities and uh, in the United States, the Southeast United States, the mid middle part of the United States, and even parts of California where we're based here, um, where we saw significant surges, beds running out, um, crisis standards of care. We're not able to provide not even just COVID-related care, but basic levels of care. Why? Because those vaccination rates are below 60%. Um, because in those communities, a lot of times people weren't wearing masks. And when you combine those two together, things don't work. When you use them together, they do work. And my message to everyone here today is that the vaccines are efficacious. Um, we've heard about people breaking through with infections who have vaccines. Let me just put this in perspective. Um, for at least our hospital system across the country, um, if you're vaccinated, you have a less than 1% chance of getting infected. 
um, if you're vaccinated, you have less than one third percent chance of actually getting into a hospital. The vaccines are safe. There are now large studies looking at the safety relative to the complications from COVID. There's no question that the vaccines are way safer than waiting to get COVID. And then the last thing I'll just say here is the vaccines provide longer term immunity than what we call so-called natural immunity. Um, so if you get natural immunity, meaning you got infected with the, the virus, you're not necessarily protected against other variants. And these vaccines appear to be pretty durable against all the variants that are circulating around right now. Uh, well said, Dr. Prody. Can I just ask you, uh, is, it, is it exhaustive? Have you guys given up, meaning the medical community, of even trying to get the unvaccinated to get vaccinated? Because in the Bay Area, for example, San Francisco Bay Area, we're talking 80, 90 percent vaccination rates. But while you said other parts of the country are 50, 60 percent, does that battle continue? Or at what point is, do, does people, do, do people just check out? Oh, we're not done. Um, I think we're just actually now at the grassroots part of this whole campaign, as I see it. Um, so let me speak at a, a patient level. Um, when I'm talking to my patients in clinic, um, it's now coming down to what's going on with you? What's specifically holding you back? Um, let me understand your background. Let me understand your community. Where are you coming from? Where are you getting your information? There's a battle of misinformation versus what is actual fact. Um, and that's why I think this panel is so important, because it's not going to be just the healthcare community. It's not just public health messaging. It's not just going to be coming from the government. It is actually going to come from influencers in the community. Um, and employers are a key part of this discussion. Let's bring in Brett Hart, uh, based on what you just said, uh, the president of United Airlines. Brett, nice to see you. Um, I 99%, I believe, United Airlines have been vaccinated uh, of your 67,000 employees here in the United States. I think a lot of people are wondering, how'd you do it? How are you doing it? Yeah, thank you, Raj. And again, it's a real pleasure to be here this evening. You know, uh, throughout the first year of the pandemic, we were really aggressive about trying everything that was at our disposal, including being the first to require masks um, on aircraft and then in hold rooms and break rooms and in our clubs and um, different uh, processes for cleaning our aircraft and the like. Uh, but as soon as it became clear that vaccines would be available and available across the country, we started having discussions about um, the possibility of mandating vaccines. And we started those discussions towards the end of 2020. Um, it wasn't feasible at that time, but um, one of the things that we did at the, the turn of the year and the beginning of this year we went public with our with our employees and we started talking about the fact that as an executive team, um, when it was feasible and when we thought we could do it, we would we would require uh, vaccines. And I think that what that did was that allowed us to to have that conversation with our with our team members over the course of the year. Um, and once we finally got to the point where we um, understood that the vaccine was widely available enough and that we could feasibly uh, step out and require it, uh, and we did, um, then we think that from a cultural perspective and from the perspective of our employees having the opportunity to think about it and really embrace and understand why we will require it, um, we think that it allowed those who were certainly in favor of it to move quickly and to show their support. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, help bring those uh, amongst our, our employees who were uh, more predisposed to oppose it um, to help us actually bring them along in this process. We're hearing so much from the other airlines, uh, not 
we're not asking you to comment on those airlines, but so much problems with Southwest and American and Delta. What did United do differently or what did you do uh, to get on this course of 99%? Yeah, I think, I think, again, one part of it was communication and transparency. Um, we talked very early on about our desire to do this. Um, I think there was an expectation within our organization that when, when we were able to do it, that we would require it. Um, we spent a lot of time educating our employees about the vaccines. Um, we also engaged our employees. We were, we were the first airline to carry the vaccine from Europe uh, to the U.S. Um, so we shared those victories and we shared a perspective that the one way for us to, to really beat this pandemic, um, to get our business back on track and to um, to create an environment where both our customers and our employees and their families were safe was to get everyone vaccinated. So we were, um, we were very aggressive uh, from the earliest point in talking to our employees about it, educating them, having transparent conversations, um, and addressing the pushback where we found it. Molly, I'm going to get to you in just a moment, but one more quick one for you, Brett. Uh, the conversations with the unions, I'm guessing those are never easy, but obviously you got past some of the challenges. Yeah, look, we have a terrific relationship with our, with our unions. Um, 90% of our organization is unionized. Um, we, have, we have great union leaders and great union employees. So again, I think the opportunity to have these discussions early on and throughout this process um, really helped. Um, and once we made the announcement, our, our union um, representatives were very strong in terms of getting out and, and making it clear that this is something that we could do. Um, and, um, and they have been partners in this process uh, from the very outset. Brett, really good information. Really fascinating to hear it from the big corporate level. Uh, Molly Moon Knightsel, let's bring you in. You're on the smaller level, more of the grassroots down, to, you know, literally selling ice cream with, with many employees there. 187 employees in the Seattle area. You hear Brett. Now tell us your perspective on getting people vaccinated, your employees, and what your communication was like with them. Well, we uh, had similar conversations as soon as the vaccines looked available last spring about mandates. And as a small business in a customer service economy that has been struggling all pandemic to retain and recruit employees, we personally hadn't, my company hadn't had a hard time recruiting, but every company around us was having a hard time recruiting and retaining employees. So we kind of held back on a, on a vaccine mandate and 95% of our employees ran out and got vaccinated. But my fear has been that I hire about a hundred seasonal employees every year. And my fear was that if we didn't have a vaccine mandate in place, we would be wondering if we could keep that 95%, 97% into next year. So I was so happy when President Biden announced that there would be OSHA standards and that there would be a vaccine mandate for employers with um, over 100 employees. That was about workplace safety because public health and workplace safety are the same thing. And we created a vaccine mandate at Molly Moons when President Biden said that every employer our size and larger would need to have a vaccine mandate in place because that gives us the ability to be on a level playing field with every other company recruiting talent. Sure. You were actually invited to the White House and met with President Biden. Uh, what was said in that conversation? Why did he want your voice at the table? 
Well, I'm a founding member of an organization called Main Street Alliance, which is a coalition of small businesses that represent small business needs, um, sort of as a, sometimes a countervoice to things like Chambers and the NFIB. And uh, we were started to make sure that there were small business tax credits in, included in the Affordable Care Act. And I've done um, activism for small businesses around raising the minimum wage and paid safe and sick time. And so I let my voice be heard for Main Street Alliance members about the need for vaccine mandates to level the playing field so that I can compete for the same talent with breath. Um, and I think the, the White House was interested and President Biden was interested in hearing from very small companies and very large companies about how vaccine mandates can be a part of the of the broader solution. Jim Wonderman, this is a perfect setup for you. You you work hand in hand and have monitored Bay Area companies here uh, for so many years. Um, what are you What are you hearing just on on the street level from from ice cream shops, pizza parlors to to United Airlines? What, what are you What are you hearing? Well, thank you, and it's great to hear from these. Uh impressive leaders. And I know one way or another, Molly's going to find some way to deliver the dessert from this session. Um, <laughs> we will ask Molly her favorite flavors. Believe yeah, me, we'll, we'll get look, to that. We'll look forward to it. You know, I think th this obviously was so difficult on business and throughout the, you know, more than year and a half, there's so many unknowns and things were shifting and, you know, the, the, the disease took its toll hard at some times and softer at other times, and we were hopeful at some times and less so at other times. But I think it created somewhat a spirit of, you know, we can get through this working together, more collaboration. I know at the Bay Area Council, the meetings that we have on a broad range of public policy issues, including healthcare and, and COVID-19, you know, the attendance rose, you know, quite a bit, you know, more folks wanting to get together and, uh, and, and feel a part of something. So I think that that was, uh, you know, that was something that was, that was certainly happening. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, before the pandemic, I think that the employer business community for the most part was a little bit disconnected from public health care as an issue. It just wasn't on the top of the list of things. Uh, obviously, with the exception of organizations like Kaiser, who you know, deliver incredible public health care and are leaders in health care policy. So we, we have worked on the issue. Uh, the Barrett Council was a leader in, uh, in, in uh, implementing or actually advocating for the Affordable Care Act a number of years ago and then helped implement it here in, in California. But I think that, uh, you know, things changed at that point and, you know, we became partners uh, with healthcare leaders, we didn't, you know, our members didn't always agree on everything, and it's obviously the job of public health officials to keep us safe. And at times, that had you know very, very severe impacts on business and the economy. But at the end of the day, here, you know, we're coming through this in our region, uh, as 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 has been stated, uh, you know, uh, very in very strong shape. You know, we didn't we didn't take the kind of impact from the Delta variant that other regions did because we, you know, I think we all work together hand in hand to you know, jointly protect ourselves. And Jim, Jim, if I can jump in initially, you talk, you know, not everyone's going to be happy with mandatory vaccines at the workplace or being pushed into this initially, how many of your, how many businesses in the, in the Bay area council that you guys work with uh, were against this? And then what about now? 
Yeah, well, you know, we we have a lot of members, 325 members in absolutely every sector, including the public sector. And, you know, there were a lot of different points of view, as Molly was pointing out, there's a fear factor that if we make our employees do something they don't want to do, they'll go be employed by somebody else. Um, ultimately, when Kaiser and United Airlines in particular, and there were a few others, announced that this was going to work for their organizations, we said, you know, this is, you know, we looked at the numbers, and it was became adamantly clear that vaccination is the path to protecting the public, protecting workers, and getting past the uh, COVID-19. So our health committee took this issue up, our executive committee uh, took it up, and unanimously uh, uh, put out a, a very strong statement to all employers saying, get your employees vaccinated when they're you know, coming together in a workplace. You know, this is sort of your responsibility. Is um, there, a, is there a, 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 a kind of a lesson plan here in terms of Molly Moon's ice cream or United Airlines, where you tell some of the, some of the other businesses, big or small, hey, this is, this is how they did it? We sure did. And, you know, we're, we're usually not in the habit of telling our members what to do. Uh, you know, we're a policy group. We listen to our members and we make recommendations, you know, to the to to government and uh, regulators and 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 folks involved in making public decisions as to which way to go on issues. But in this case, uh, we felt we needed to take a pretty strong stance that there was a lot of confusion about this and we could cut through some of that and we could do some good. And I think as a result of 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 what we did, it it built on the momentum. We weren't the first ones to do this, uh, as I said, but uh, I, I think it helped create more momentum and has had a really positive result. So, uh, you know, we're very, very proud of that. And I think it's, it's going to have some lasting effect. Dr. Perotti, let's get you back in here. Just from the Kaiser point of view here, um, are we going back at all? Or is this kind of the, the, the new normal, the new future in terms of uh, the public sector working with health and working with the private sector as well? Well, I hope it's not the last. Um, I can tell you that, uh, you know, compared to, you know, prior discussions and meetings that I've had, you know, over the years when it comes to either prior epidemics or other public health related issues, the, the table, and now it's a virtual table, has looked a lot different. Um, and so, you know, whether it came to testing, whether it came to supply chain, um, the lack of PPE, and now we're talking about vaccines. Um, that table now consists of health care. It consists of uh, private business, it, it, public health, government. Um, and we're all trying to problem solve these together because there's no way to do this in any one sector by itself. Um, the fact that we now have two thirds of all employees in the United States are under some form of mandate. Um, that couldn't have happened without that collective table. Um, and we're not done. You know, there are other variants out there. Um, this is a worldwide problem. I'm looking at my uh, colleague from United Airlines. Um, you know, companies actually have international footprints. Um, and as much as we've worked so hard in the United States to up our vaccination game um, and get to levels of 60 to 90%, there are parts of the world that are still at two and 3%. Um, and you might ask, why should we care? Um, you know, beyond just the human cost, um, we should care because those are the areas where new variants are going to pop up, 
where vaccine escape variants are going to pop up. And actually, you know, businesses are being affected by that. Um, and so, you know, our next sort of bully pulpit here, and this is some of the conversations that we're having at the national level, is how can uh, businesses that are based in the United States that have international footprints influence other countries, influence actually the US government to increase vaccine access. So I would say, Raj, you know, on the front of COVID-19, we're definitely not done. And I think when I think about the American Rescue Plan that was passed earlier this year, um, you saw the inklings of what it's going to take to rebuild the public health infrastructure, because we're going to have to be ready for whatever comes next beyond COVID-19. And I think that, again, is going to require private business, uh, Kaiser Permanente, you know, organizations like ours that are private healthcare entities to lean in and help with this public health. Well, Dr. Brody, you said it in terms of this is not a local or a national problem, it's global here in the Bay Area, right? I mean, there's so much travel, international travel, so much the Silicon Valley and so forth. Um, Brett Hart, let's get you back in here. You, you, you're a global footprint in terms of what your company does and you do it well. Um, how can you help spread this? What, what can you do? What conversation can you have with President Biden and Dr. Fauci and so forth, if you haven't already, in terms of how United can help as just one example of a company helping here? Yeah, no, absolutely. And let me say first and foremost that one of the things that has been um, most gratifying and inspiring about what we've all been through is the transparency and the willingness to share information and to lock arms and get through this together. And that goes for companies, large and small and public and private entities. Um, the information sharing, the, um, the walking and bumping in the dark and trying to figure things out together throughout this process has been really uh, and Brett, is, is that happening? Uh, honest question. Is that happening within your, your competitors and your colleagues? It, it absolutely is. Um, and, and each of the things that, that we've all done, I think that, that in most instances, um, you know, we, we have a way to share that information that's legal. Um, and, um, and in most instances, we've had fast followers um, throughout, the, throughout the industry and, and, and in other industries. We have learned lessons from others as well. I think one of the things that, that we'll find, and, and especially as you talk about international now, um, you know, one of the issues even with our business is consistency and understanding regulatory re regimes. And, and if you're a passenger and you're, and you're going to travel outside the U.S., you, you want to know um, exactly what's required of you. You want to know that that's not going to change while you're in mid-flight, which has happened. Um, during the during the pandemic, um, and and I agree with the doctor completely. Um, once we got to a point where we have comfort um, that we have this under control here in the U.S., um, we still we still have to ensure that the rest of the world gets to where we are, um, and that is that that means that we all have to remain vigilant and heavily engaged both on the public and yeah. Public. In, in terms of your bottom line, I have family in London and India. I'm hesitant to take my family to visit them overseas. Um, that impacts, and we would go united, that impacts your bottom line. What can you do to accelerate this process to get uh, more vaccinations worldwide? Yeah, well, those, uh, what I'll tell you on one, one side is the conversations have been occurring throughout the pandemic. Um, we have great access to officials in other countries. We understand what their requirements are. We've put technology in place to ensure that if you're going to make that trip, you know ahead of time what the requirements are in that country. We can help you find um, testing, we can help you certify your vaccination cards, um, but we're also ensuring that those conversations are, in, are occurring both from, uh, from the country outside the U.S., 
but with our government as well. And the doors have been open. We've had really productive conversations um, with our government here in the U.S., um, but we need uniform uh, policies and procedures um, that apply across uh, the, across the world to ensure that that if you if you're going to take a trip, you know with some certainty what's required of you, and it's not different from country to country. Dr. Perotti, are you optimistic uh, in terms of the global vaccination rate in the in the next six to twelve months? I think we've got a lot of work to do. Um, there are parts of the world where you know, of course, Europe, um, where you see vaccination rates that are similar or approaching that of the United States. Uh, but there are other parts of the world that are desperate for vaccine um, and access. And so I think, you know, again, it, 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 we've talked about partnering in the U.S., um, us working with WHO um, and working with other like-minded organizations, other international uh, organizations and, and uh, companies that have these kinds of footprints uh, is going to be uh, really incumbent upon the U.S. to help lean in, lead um, that's why I think we're in this for the long haul. Um, and I, I think I would be remiss if I said and put a date on it. But, you know, I think that's going to be the work of 2022 and perhaps 2023. I mean, it really is going to take that level of effort. If you think about other contagious diseases, I mean, it took that kind of mobilization. You think about smallpox, measles, mumps, rubella. I mean, these weren't things that were solved overnight. Um, and what I am heartened by um, is that the world is focused on this. Um, and so it's going to take not just focus, but also resolve. I remember in March of 2020, when this all started, uh, relatively speaking, uh, there was some uh, research, some Harvard researchers said, January of 2022, we should actually look up and see if we can make progress. But it would take that long, and, and we're almost there. Uh, Molly, let's bring you back in here. Um, Molly Moon's ice cream, from your perspective, um, obviously, things have really taken a toll uh, in a negative way in this, during this pandemic for small businesses. But if you had a wish list, a magic wand, what would you like to see happen in this next year from the small business point of view? Well, I think, you know, these vaccine mandates for employers will help. I think just communities being convinced to become vaccinated who have been victims of misinformation or fear. Um, kids getting vaccinated is top of my mind. I have two young daughters, eight and three years old, neither of whom can be vaccinated yet. And um, they're, you know, they're, my three-year-old has worn a mask half her life. And so all of her interactions with all of her friends have been from the eyes up. And kids' brains develop how they're going to interact with the rest of society at, you know, one, two, three years old, all of her social interactions have, have been stented. So I think um, kids getting vaccinated and adults being vaccinated to protect our communities of children while they can't is probably the top priority for me. Um, I think, you know, I started this company to make the world better uh, one scoop at a time. And I'd like to get back to a place where my employees can feel joyful about serving ice cream. And that probably means mask free. And that probably means being able to provide samples and chit chat with our customers, which is still very difficult uh, between the two masks and the plexiglass and the the fear of um, interacting with, with your customer and the public and your community. 
So I just really look forward to a time when transmission rates are so low that, and our kids are all protected, that we can take masks off and have joyful, fun interactions with our communities again. Has business picked up just this last few months over the summer? And what do you, what's the forecast uh, going into the winter now, especially in rainy Seattle? Business was okay this summer, but not back to, um, not back to pre-pandemic levels. I thought it was kind of interesting when I was at the White House, I got to chit chat with Secretary Yellen for a bit about business and that she was quite surprised that my business hasn't returned to pre-pandemic levels. And I think that's something important for folks who don't work um, in customer service. Restaurants are still struggling. One of the things I think I would, I hope for in the coming year is probably more federal support for food and beverage businesses. Um, because we're not gonna return to normal until people's behavior returns to absolute pre-pandemic normal. And like we were all just talking about, that could still be months, if not a year out. Jim, do we need more federal financial support uh, for, for, for the companies that you work with, the Bay Area Council? Well, I think especially some of the smaller businesses, which are, you know, we, we've lost a lot of them. And I think some of them are on the cusp. And I, I don't know that we can keep as a country pouring in as much resources as we have, but I think we can be, you know, more specific, uh, incisive about where the support is needed. But I, I, you know, without some continued support, I, I don't think there'll be as many good stories to tell as there would otherwise be. I think a lot of businesses will be able to recover, but it's, there's still uncertainty around timing. If you go into a lot of our communities, go to downtown San Francisco, you know, it's very, very uh, quiet. I was in Sacramento the other day where the government is, you know, folks are working from home like a ghost town. And so those businesses are really ailing. And if we're, if we can accept that they're just, we're just going to lose them. Well, that's one thing, but that there's going to be a cost associated with that. So I think it's a, a delicate balancing act because it's, you know, there, there's not an unlimited amount of resources, but you know, I, I think with good, we've learned a lot and we should apply those learnings and continue to provide the support where it's actually needed the most. Jim, I had heard, correct me if I'm wrong, what's the, what's the ballpark figure here that in the Bay Area, at least, the restaurants here in our seven to eight to nine counties, about a third are either closed down or, or shut down for, for several months. Is that accurate? Yeah, depending on where you are, it's a third to half. And that's a huge number. Now, you know, the market eventually, uh, we don't know exactly when, but the market will come back. And, you know, if, if the original restaurant can't come back, another one will take its place because people like uh, to go out and they like restaurants. And I, I, would, I would hope and I somewhat suspect that we're going to see some kind of a renaissance here. You know, we also I was going to say, in, in, a cap, in a capitalistic society here, doesn't that clear the way for new, fresh ideas in terms of pro-business now, if you want to look yeah, at it and, that and way? Yeah, and we've seen some of that with parklets and out, you know, outdoor dining and uh, folks being able to take drinks uh, off the side of the restaurant and so forth. So we're seeing some creativity happen that always happens in a crisis uh, that can then go on into the next era and actually you know, increase and expand the you know, horizons of the business opportunity. So I think we'll see some of that. But you know, at the same time, you know, we, we have folks who are, you know, who are really hurt by this. 
and we probably won't see again, at least in the same form. And that, you know, you can't help but be discouraged by those numbers. Uh, the, the, the travel, leisure, restaurant industries have been really, really hit hard. And they're the ones that have driven the numbers of uh, unemployment in the country and in- Yeah, and what's, what's so fascinating about just this entire pandemic, it's not like, oh, I've heard that guy over there. Usually it's, oh, someone within my family or my neighbor uh, or my family member or children or something. Everyone's been impacted. You know someone directly impacted if it's not yourself. Um, yeah. Dr. Brody, oh, go ahead, Molly, please. Can I just say, I think another part of the economy that just is not being talked about enough is childcare. And it's during so the pandemic- expensive, correct? People are spending so much money on it right now. Yes, but also during the pandemic, the licensing uh, regulations have changed to keep kids safer and created like smaller class sizes. I'm on the board of a preschool that is running at a deficit into the foreseeable future until we can have larger class sizes again. And so preschools and childcare centers, they've been devastated by the pandemic and there weren't specific federal programs for them to be supported financially in the ways that restaurants and live music venues and airlines have been. Um, And these are sort of the backbones of the economy. So I do think there's going to be, like Jim said, targeted, but additional help needed across the economy in in segments. That's an excellent point. Um, Dr. Prodi, if you can take your Kaiser hat off for a moment here, um, and just in terms of the medical point of view, things have changed. This pandemic has changed how we view doctors, how we even access doctors. I'm, I think I'm a few months behind on my regular checkup, but I just haven't gone. I think I speak for a lot of people. We just haven't gone to that or a dentist. How does, how is Kaiser in this sense and the medical community changing and adapting to the new relationship we have with our doctors? Yeah, I want to speak to this because it's a really important point. And there are like three things that really come to mind. So one is the revolution in telehealth. And it was already happening uh, pre-pandemic, but really started going gangbusters, um, partly out of necessity early on. As you referenced in March of 2020, everything changed. Um, but uh, being able to access care through video, through chat, through the telephone, um, through secure messaging or email. Um, All of that sort of amped up. I don't see that going away. I do see it transforming where we're at now because people do need to come back to your point. Um, There are just some things you have to do where you have to lay on hands um, or you actually have to do an x-ray and somebody's got to be in person. Um, But I think we're going to suss out, you know, how much of it does need to go back to in-person versus virtual care. The second thing that I think has been transformative, and I'll I'll speak to it in the context of vaccines, is the idea that we need to have an equity lens when we're approaching clinical care or designing clinical programs. So what do I mean by that? Um, We know that there are certain communities uh, out there that are more vaccine hesitant, uh, Black, Brown, Latinx, Asian, Um, And and we have to have culturally competent ways of communicating or getting into those communities directly. Um, And so I've seen that transformation uh, in the past when we've approached high blood pressure or hypertension. Um, The messaging that you need to do uh, for an African-American community um, as opposed to other communities is different. Um, And and it's got to be, you know, enlisting people that are actually either look like the communities that they're trying to reach um, or have the right messaging. And so we've had to do that with vaccination. I think we're going to need to do that 
um, going forward with really all of those lenses. Um, and then the last thing I want to speak to here, and it's a little bit of what Molly was talking about, is the focus on children. Um, and I do see that, um, you know, actually our path out of this um, pandemic is to focus on children because parents have been so affected, right? Parents are having to uh, take time away from work, um, do invest in childcare. Um, and, you know, if you look at California, I'll use it as an example. 95% of children are now actually back in-person school. Um, we take care of or educate 12% of the nation's children. We account for 0.7% of school closures. Now just keep that in mind here. Uh, if, if we had sort of just let everyone go to school without masks and without pushing vaccination for the 12 and up population. By the way, I can't wait till the FDA approves the five to 11 year olds, hopefully at the end of this month. Um, you can see that we actually can get kids back to school and get them back safely. Um, and that's important for child, children's mental health as well as physical health. And also I think parental health. Um, and so I, I wanna say that that's really the, the third wheel that I think has been transformative here is making sure that we're focused on children as well as adults. Right. You have 67,000 employees here. The mental health, I can speak for NBC. It's, you know, we, we talk about it a lot here. Um, uh, how do you deal with that in, in terms of other than just messaging with a nice HR message, but is there a way you guys can really deal with that and get ahead of it? Yeah, we, you know, we've been very deliberate, I think, for a number of months and getting out and talking about um, mental health in our organization um, and understanding the stress and strain that people are under. And our our employees are, from, from the very outset, they have been um, interacting with people without a, a full understanding of the pandemic um, and its and its impact, and 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 then going home to their families and and also managing you know their kids uh, um, um, doing hybrid schooling and and the rest. And so, our our appreciation for the fact that we have to approach our employees differently and talk to them differently about how to take care of themselves and take care of their families. Um, that's been apparent to us for some time. And, and we've tried to do that both through some of the typical uh, processes that are available through HR, but also more specifically through um, making specific programs available to them and understanding that, that we're just in a different place now and we're gonna do our jobs differently. Jim, is there a gap here just in this pandemic in terms of business and ins insurance issues with small businesses that you're seeing? Well, I think that, you know, there are certainly some gaps and, you know, I, I think in general, it's just been really tough on uh, the entire business community to try to get its arms around, you know, all of the economic factors that are involved in pulling through once, you know, especially once the federal and state subventions wear off, you know, where businesses are going to be and where industries are going to be. So I think it's uh, there's still a lot of dust in the air on this. And as things begin to clarify, I, I, I believe more issues will arise and we'll see more clearly some of the some of the issues. Things have been handled as they come up on a case by case basis between you know, various parts of the business community. And you know, we haven't seen, you know, I think, the final final on this, but you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, you know, commercial properties have had to make uh, accommodations to renters, for example, who can't afford to pay their rent. What will happen, 
you know, at a time when people start coming back to the office, we hope they'll start coming back to the office so they can support local businesses again and uh, get normal. But there's going to have to be some kind of an arbitrage that takes place, I think, along many, many fronts, you know, to, 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 to achieve that sense of normalcy and not do it in a way that has a, a, a huge impact on the overall economy which you know, we have to be very, very careful. We're seeing supply chain issues, which everybody is aware of. You know, that in turn has effects on consumers. We're seeing inflation, which we hadn't seen in a while. So there's a number of things that are going on here, which are really all a function of the pandemic directly and indirectly that are going to affect themselves. And I, I think we have to be very focused on solutions and it's going to take actions of business, working with the government, uh, you know, be, being very, very uh, deliberate about how to move through this next phase, I, I think it's going to be very, very important. Molly, if we were to sit in on some of your employees just hanging out, whether they're part-time or full-time, what are their biggest concerns right now? Without the CEO in the room, without the president in the room, if they were just hanging out, talking with each other, what are they talking about in terms of their anxiety for, these, for, the, for the year ahead? Several of my employees are concerned about breakthrough cases and worried about protecting themselves and their families, especially those with kids. I think my employees who are moms of small kids are all sort of worried about breakthrough cases, customers who won't wear masks, um, and taking, taking a breakthrough case home to their unvaccinated kids. And I think the other sort of one of the larger concerns is mental health working in customer service through mask mandates and masks coming off and mask mandates coming back. Um, I'm sure Brett feels the same. It's been so taxing on our employees and being afraid of your customer for over a year and a half is not a place that anyone who applied for a job scooping ice cream ever thought they would be. So mental health has been incredibly important to our team. And I want to praise Kaiser Permanente here, actually. Um, there have been incredible tools rolled out before the pandemic and during the pandemic to help um, Kaiser patients and all of my employees get free health care uh, at Kaiser. And they have been taking advantage of some of the meditation apps that are free through Kaiser, all the wellness programs, and therapists just uh, we need more therapists in America right now and many of my employees have been struggling with how to stay happy through the pandemic. Dr. Prodi, my, my you wife's a clinical psychologist yeah. and uh, she so she sees patients now you know she doesn't actually it's not in the same space but she actually sees them but she also teaches uh, and so she's got first and second year students who are starting to become clinical psychologists who have never been in the same room as a patient. And I think there's going to be some implications to the delivery of psychological services and therapy we're going to have to work through. There may be some positives to the delivery system, but it's something we really have to consider, uh, this massive change in the way we, we help people. Excellent. Two points for you, Dr. Purdy. Just the increase in what Kaiser is doing for men health, but also what Jim was just saying, um, is there going to be a reckoning, you know, come post-pandemic where all of us were so used to telehealth that now we're in person? Well, so I wanted to speak to Molly's point here on a couple of levels. So one is that um, you're right in terms of mental health being front and center. Um, and, you know, we've 
implemented a program that's called Connect to Care, where we actually um, can connect to people by video um, or telephonically. And interestingly enough, some patients prefer that mode um, because A, it's convenient. Um, B, um, they have more sort of agency over the, the meeting. Um, if they want to end the meeting, they can literally hit leave as opposed to having to actually walk out uh, of an appointment. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that, that actually is going to be a way that we can scale mental health more effectively in the United States. Um, the, the second thing that Molly was bringing up that I think is really important, and, and we've been committed to this, and I know that other healthcare systems have as well, um, is that as we have gone along in this pandemic, we've had to really develop things either on the fly or in the moment. Um, and we've been willing to share our best thinking. Um, so a lot more open source related material. So for example, in the beginning, we were trying to figure out, okay, what, how do you do PPE? How do you handle a patient? How do you handle a surge? And we developed playbooks. And then we didn't just keep them from within. Um, we shared them with basically anyone who was interested, the government, other health systems, um, and then with our patients um, to be able to share, here's in the moment what we know, um, here's what we don't know, um, and we're gonna keep you informed. Um, and so I hope that actually those lines of communication continue um, beyond the pandemic um, to other things that are so important here. You know, when you think about heart disease, uh, you think about cancer care, stroke care, all those kinds of things um, will benefit from these lines of communication that we've now established. Um, you know, the speed at which we can, and I, I'm an HIV doctor as well as an infectious disease doctor. So, I mean, the, the revolution of how fast we were able to move research because of the AIDS epidemic, I think we're seeing similar transformative changes here with COVID-19 in terms of producing evidence and research that then becomes applicable and hopefully explainable to the general public in a much more rapid fashion. I think we're going to come out of this um, with a lot of learnings about how do we communicate with people um, and, and how do we uh, bring people in when they need to be brought back in, Raj, to your other point, which is how about this in-person hangover thing? I um, mean, I do want to speak to this, which is the deferred care that's out there. Um, there are people that weren't able to come in um, that have heart failure or they have, uh, you know, potentially more advanced cancer now. Um, we've got to be able to get our arms around this pandemic so we can get back to the business of taking care of regular disease because that didn't take a vacation. That didn't stop um, during this past year and a half. Um, so being able to provide that level of access while accommodating these new needs for access are going to be really the juggle um, that the healthcare system is going to have to do. And, and I cringe to ask, are we going to see this influx of patients with some serious other issues, non-COVID issues coming in, in in a year or two from now? So I think that that is our concern. And that's what we have to be prepared for. Um, and, and so we have to, to message to people that it is safe to come back to get care. And I want to sort of put that message out as strongly as possible today, um, that we do need you to come back to get your screenings. Uh, to get your mammograms, to get your cervical cancer screening, to get your colon cancer screening, that all needs to start happening again. Um, because I am worried that there will be a tail um, to this pandemic where we see other diseases become a problem and more prominent. 
Well said, Dr. Prodi. I think we'll all have some takeaways from this. Uh, Brett, let's get you back in here. Molly said something about uh, it's, it's disheartening to see, you know, an, an ice cream shop where it's all about community and smiling and feeling good. Um, and also just look at your business. This is more of a personal question. Just what, when I, the, the, the few times I've flown now recently and just seeing flight attendants who are just trying to do their job. And then you see so many clips on, on the news about unruly passengers who don't want to wear masks. Um, they must be going through a lot, your, your pe- the, the cabin crew. Yeah, you know, it's an understatement to say that it's been a difficult year and a half for them. Um, certainly their jobs have morphed into something that, that, it, that their jobs weren't intended to be. Um, you know, they are not um, supposed to deal with confrontation like that. It's not part of their responsibilities. What I will say is that they've done a really remarkable job of finding a way to try to engage um, and to de-escalate difficult situations. Um, it's really, uh, it's really been unfortunate, um, but I think that uh, over time our our folks have adapted and and they're they're dealing with the situations as best they can. But again, it's not part of their their job description. Um, they're they're not there to to engage um, in potentially physical altercations. Um, no, you you're, you're using terms that we use for police departments: engage, de-escalation. Um, so if this isn't going away, which we don't think it is in in the short term, do you retrain? Do you reclassify these flight attendants and cabin crew into into something different? No, that's you know that's never going to be their their job. Um, what I what I will say is they're doing a wonderful job now of de-escalating situations, and and that's what we want them to do. Um, we want them to de-escalate and walk away and allow those who are trained to deal with um, difficult situations to deal with them. And that's once the airplane is on is on the ground. In an ideal scenario, we can deal with it before the plane takes off. Um, but our number one priority is safety. And that, that includes the safety, most assuredly, of our crew members as well. Um, so, again, I think our, our, our folks are doing a fantastic job uh, in the air and under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Um, we just have to continue to be very vigilant about addressing these issues when they come up. And um, we have been very aggressive about banning passengers from flying our aircraft. Um, the issue is getting the plane down on the ground safely. Once it is, then we take action uh, with respect to these passengers because it is it, it, it is just unacceptable behavior. Um, and as we were talking before about the issues that we have to address with, with our health and our, our mental health of our our team members. Um, these are issues that are going to play out well past um, the, you know, once we get our arms around this pandemic, and we all have to be mindful of that and what we'll have to do to get our team members back to a good place. Jim, a lot of frustration from the Bay Area Council and the, the businesses you work with, and just are we supposed to enforce mandates? Are we not supposed to? What's the county saying? There's a lot of questions we hear on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, on the whole, the clarity has gotten a little bit better. And with the Delta strain, you know, that was a pretty scary uh, period of time. So I I think businesses were disappointed, but quite aware that what they needed to do. So I think it's getting better. There, There are certain businesses that are having a harder time enforcing the mandate. They're more reluctant to do it. Uh, they're you know, subject to losing more employees if they if they do it. But on the whole, uh, you know what we learned from the information that Kaiser presented, we, you know, the, the vaccination rate had kind of stopped. And what we were seeing was if business didn't step up to the plate and do this, we wouldn't see the kind of gains we made since 
mandates came down and then the president took action and so forth. So this has been actually a very successful uh, moment driven in large part by business saying, you know, we, we have a role to play uh, and we're going to play it and it's not going to be perfect and not everybody's going to be happy, but you know, this is really important to, uh, you know, protect uh, our lives and each other's lives. So I think on the whole, it's getting better and we're seeing more businesses provide more clarity about what their policies are and when they're planning to come back and probably using the time in between, uh, as Brett said at the beginning, you know, communication is, is so key and making sure that everybody understands what's expected and why it's expected and being really open and transparent uh, in that dialogue. So really, really, really good insight. Dr. Brody, um, uh, Jim said it really well, not, it's not going to be perfect. We're doing this in real time um, on the fly. Are you able to, to, to consult with big businesses, small businesses, community leaders in terms of just the communication, not just patients in terms of a medical point of view? Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually been one of the biggest sort of eye-opening experiences of this past uh, uh, year and a half is that, you know, as a physician, it's usually not my role to be talking to the business leadership. Um, but, you know, that that's actually now a regular occurrence uh, for myself. You know, you heard the opening take with Mr. Adams. Um, you know, that that's actually a well that we're uh, often going to. I'll, I'll just uh, sort of underscore what Jim's talking about here. When, um, you know, I talk to some of my individual patients um, who have gotten vaccine and they have, and as you said, Raj, there are stories within families, right? Where there's a divide. Some members of the family are getting the vaccine and some aren't. And I've said, you know, what is it going to take? You know, I mean, we, we've got the science, we've got the numbers, um, We've got rational arguments. Um, how are we going to get there? And a number of my patients have said, you know, not until somebody says you have to get it, are people going to get it? Um, and so I want to apply, uh, applaud actually the, the businesses that have leaned in with us, um, the healthcare industry to do so, because I think that is actually going to be one of the biggest pushes here that's going to get us across that finish line. Um, and then the last thing is that, you know, each of the businesses that have uh, been able to move forward, I've heard the sharing of best practices. So I've been on a number of these calls, uh, whether it's in the Bay Area or nationally, um, where businesses are sharing best practices. You know, what are the HR issues that you've got to tackle? What are the legal issues that you've got to tackle? Um, federal, state, um, and, you know, and what do you need to coordinate with public health? Um, how can you leverage your health system to actually show up at work um, and promote vaccination? So um, it's all of the above there um, that's making this possible. But yeah, the ability to pick up the phone um, and talk to local businesses and collaborate, um, I think that's a real big boon uh, that comes from, it's one of the silver linings that there is one out of this whole experience that we've had. That's interesting that you note that. Brett, let's bring you back in here as we wrap this up. Just a few more minutes. Uh, say there's a, a local CEO, local president, local business leader has 1,000 employees, maybe 5,000 employees, is uh, on the fence of issuing a vaccine mandate for his or her employees um, and calls you. What kind of guidance would you give him or her? Yeah, I would, I would say, look, you cannot make everyone in this process happy. You can't. You have to be guided by what you what you honestly believe is the right thing to do. And you know, for us, this really did boil down to what we believed, you know, saving lives. 
and, and doing what, what we thought was absolutely necessary. Um, so I would tell them that, listen, be as transparent and, and open about the way that you're thinking about this and, and um, talk to anyone who will talk to you in your organization, but um, step forward and, and make the decision um, and, um, and push through. And what you will find at the end of the day is that there are some loud voices that oppose it. Um, but you will be you will be giving um, a path to those who want to come out and tell you how grateful they are that you're that you're actually making this step forward, um, and and that's what we found that the, the voices have been far stronger um, supporting what we've done um, than those who have been opposed to what we're doing. So it's been the most challenging uh, time of your career. Yeah, uh, no question about it. I mean, this is this is the biggest challenge that our industry has ever faced, and and look, we were. We had, we had, you know, team members who were losing their lives on a weekly basis. Um, nothing, you know, nothing has, has compared to that on a week after week after week basis. So uh, without question, the most difficult um, period of, of my professional career, um, but in a lot of ways, um, the most satisfying as well. I mean, everything that we've been talking about for the last hour, while people coming together, sharing best practices, locking arms and trying to do what we all think is right um, has been also, I would say, the most gratifying period of my career. Uh, to this entire panel, I really appreciate it. I think for everyone watching and listening, just your candid comments and, and your insight. Um, it's, been, it's been fascinating and, and, and really educational. Um, as we wrap it up, uh, just with a smile here, uh, Molly, favorite type of ice cream that we should have at Molly Moon's when we visit Seattle. And like Jim said at the beginning of this program, can you send it to us if we're not in Seattle? Uh, our customers love anything with chunks in it. So our uh, oatmeal cinnamon cookie dough ice cream is one of our top sellers. Our homemade cookies and cream and our Yeti ice cream, a Pacific Northwest favorite, is uh, sweet cream ice cream with granola, uh, chocolate chunks, and a ribbon of caramel. Okay, yes, yes, and yes. Right, panel? Uh, and Brett, uh, what's what's a what's a destination uh, United uh, flight that you like to take or will take in the in the near future? You know, we we um, we just announced um, not too long ago Johannesburg, South Africa. Oh, nice. Um, so um, listen, this is a, it's a big world out there. So we we got to get people back on on aircraft and get them back to exploring and and seeing other cultures and 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 enjoying enjoying this beautiful world that we have. We agree. Uh, Jim, thank you for your time. Good seeing you as well. Dr. Prodi, thank you for your insight. Um, unfortunately, this is it. We have to, we have to wrap up our program, but uh, we want to thank the, I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for bringing us all together uh, and giving us a platform to share all of your great ideas and thoughts uh, for hosting this important conversation. And again, a special thanks to Kaiser Permanente providing, for providing support for this program as part of its Destination Health Series. I'm Raj Mathai, and this is the Commonwealth Club program. We're now adjourned. Have a great time. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 